but it's one where we can find great joy if we allow ourselves to connect with the reality that life under the sun is filled with tragedy, dot, 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 apart from hope in the gospel, right? We can try to doll it up all we want, but really life just all boils down to a brief and meaningless existence that will be forgotten. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes shows us. And as Christians, we can admit that. We, we can see that the world is broken and seems like it's going nowhere, and we can still smile. We can stare at death in the face and laugh because we know that the God who made the world and made us has a plan. And while our plans, uh, we're, we're just used to them failing all the time, his never do, right? Another observation uh, we made is that nothing in this life really satisfies we, we have heavenly appetites that nothing material, nothing made, nothing in the world, nothing under the sun can satisfy. But those things are still good and they're meant to be enjoyed. God intends for us to enjoy them the way that he intends for us to enjoy them. And one of his purposes for earthly blessings is to point us to heavenly ones. They never ultimately satisfy us because they're not supposed to. That's by design. And it, they're, they're there so that we will look up from this place and place our trust and our hope in Him and find our satisfaction in Him and not in things at all. That's, that's where we find our joy is in Him. So nothing in this life really satisfies. Life is a vapor, a breath. That's what Solomon has observed. And he begins to take us on this quest for meaning under the sun. In the first place, that he looks is in wisdom and in learning, and it's not there. So let's pick up where we left off. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Now hear the words of the one true and living God. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I plied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. 
I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done in the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. That's the word of God. Father in heaven, uh, we ask again, Lord, that you continue to be with us this morning. We know that you are. Uh, help us to know it. Help us to, as our brother Foster often preaches, to, to have a unique sense of your presence with us. And God, be with me. I pray now that you would move me out of the way, that you would speak to the hearts of your people, and that it would be good for your church, for your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. So Solomon is beginning his quest for self-fulfillment. He's like an explorer. He has a home base in wisdom, but he's venturing out to experience life at its fullest. And he's trying to reconcile what he's learned and what he's read and what he's, what he's known with his experience with the world, and it doesn't, always, it doesn't always work out. Not only that, he's finding out it doesn't always pay to be wise. Wisdom has its limits. He sees that the wisdom he's learned is wisdom. It's wise but it just doesn't always work out. It's not solid enough footing for him to base his existence on. He still has these burning questions about uh, meaning and, and, and purpose. So he tries to fill this emptiness with pleasure, beginning in chapter 2. And after he'd gained everything there was to be gained, he realizes he's gained nothing at all. So here's the main idea of the sermon this morning. When you truly understand the human condition you begin to realize the solution cannot possibly be conditioned on humans. In other words, when you, when you recognize what it truly is that's man's problem, it becomes very clear that man is incapable of solving this problem. And, but isn't that what we're all tempted to believe? That, that man is the measure of all things, and we're always on the cusp of improving ourselves to the point of being God's. Isn't, isn't that what our culture wants us to believe? Isn't that the lie that we believed from the beginning? If we just knew more, as if education were the key to compassion, right? Or if we would just accept ourselves, if we, would just, if we just could learn how to love ourselves more, we would be able to love others and heal the world. Solomon says you can know everything about the world and it won't bring you joy, it'll bring you sorrow. Because you'll get to see how bad things really are. And more than that, you'll realize there, you have nothing within your power to be able to fix it. He says you can have your fill of every pleasure and even if you succeed in having everything you ever wanted, you'll still be empty-handed. A head full of wisdom and a belly full of pleasure cannot heal a heart full of sin. Won't do it. Our problem isn't our lack of knowledge. It's not our lack of things. Our problem is the disapproval of God. And no man can solve that for us. God has to. And he did. 
by becoming a man himself and drinking every drop of the wrath of God due for our sins. When we understand the human condition, we realize the solution cannot be conditioned upon humans. It's conditioned upon Christ and his righteousness and his atonement for our sins. Now, three points for you this morning. Wisdom leads to humiliation. Self-indulgence leads to humiliation. And humiliation leads us to Christ. Before we jump in, let's define that. We all have some sense of what the word humiliation means, but let's just all get on the same page. Humiliation is defined as the abasement of pride, which leads to a state of being humbled or reduced to lowliness or submission. Someone's view of themselves being reduced. It's a a painful loss of pride. It connotes embarrassment. And we should be embarrassed. We, we, we should be embarrassed. We need to be embarrassed because then we'll really be on to something. Then we can recognize the human condition for what it is, stop pretending that we can fix it, and cry out to the God who is actually there for forgiveness and the healing that can only come from Him. We don't need more education. We don't need more pedagogy. We don't need more psychology. We need humility that drives us to hide under the shadow of the cross. That's what we need. So first point, wisdom leads to humiliation. Looking at verses 12 through 18 there. In verse 13, Solomon says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Before he gets into detail, he summarizes there. He says he's seen it all and it's all vanity and striving after wind. He says this, 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 this business of, of searching by wisdom, it's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Why does he say that? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Right? Solomon said that in Proverbs 1-7. Those were his words. He knows that. that. That's the theme of the whole wisdom book of the, whole, the Old Testament. That's the crux of his thinking. So he's not saying wisdom's bad. It just leads to humiliation. That's where it ultimately leads. And worldly wisdom, especially wisdom that is man-centered, that's not God-centered, will drive you mad. What conclusions can a man really come to when he observes the world that God made while ignoring the God who made it? How does life look to someone who only knows God from a distance? Looks pretty bleak. He observes in verse 15, nothing crooked can be made straight and nothing lacking can be counted. That's the frustrated existence we are doomed to experience in this life as a result of the fall. And now look, when I, when I say stuff like that, right, the doom and gloom stuff, some of you may wince because you don't like to think of life that way. But listen, I just don't want you to keep going on believing a lie. Either, either the earth was cursed like God said it was, or it wasn't. It was either a big deal or it wasn't. Right? 
It doesn't do us any good to say, yep, that's what it says, but then to pretend like that's not the case. Romans 8.20 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We have to be able to admit the bondage and corruption in order to recognize the freedom and the glory. I said last week we have to be able to take an honest look at what Solomon lays out for us in Ecclesiastes, even when it's painful. The pain is a teacher. Seeing the world for what it really is, being wise to it, and realizing we're hopeless, leads us to a thick, warm slice of humble pie. And that's good for us. That's a good place to be. We need that. That's good medicine. Solomon says in verses 16 and 17 that he wasn't just wise. It wasn't just that he was wise. He owns the blessing that God says he gave him, and he claims to be the wisest man there ever was. That's who God says he is. That's who God made him to be. He had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and he even tried madness and folly. You remember that proverb I just mentioned a minute ago, Proverbs 1-7. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The rest of that verse is, fools despise wisdom and instruction. Solomon's played both parts. He's played the wise, he's played the fool. He's tried it both ways. And he says it was all striving after wind. What he concludes in verse 18 is that in wisdom there is much vexation, he says. The more you know, the more you realize you don't know. That's annoying. The more you know, the more you realize how little control you have over things or how often things don't go the way that you expect them to or how, how out of place they all seem. Things are not as they should be. That's frustrating. And he says, at the end of that verse, he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Aren't there things you wish you could unsee or unhear? Aren't there things you, you think you might be better off not knowing? I mean, isn't ignorance bliss at least some of the time? That's what he's saying. You know, knowing everything leads to knowing how little you know, and knowing everything can't buy you happiness. It brings sorrow instead. It reminds me of that movie with Bill Murray, Groundhog Day. Have you seen that? Amanda and I just watched that the other week because, you know, it was Groundhog Day. And, uh, but, you know, he wakes up, he keeps waking up to the same day every day. He's stuck in this little town that he hates, surrounded with people that he looks down on, and he tries being kind to them, and he tries just being the opposite of kind to them, right? He, he tries being a terrorist. He, he actually kidnaps the groundhog and drives off a cliff with him. Remember that part? Epic. He, he robs an armored car. He gathers intel on this woman in town so he can use it against her later. But then he tries being everyone's hero, too. He helps some old ladies with a flat tire. Uh, he catches this kid that keeps falling out of a tree every day. And uh, he, he even tries, with all of his might, to save this poor old homeless man. And he just can't do it. No matter what he does, 
this was this, this guy's day to die. And for him, this day is every day. And it breaks his heart. There's nothing he can do about it. What breaks his heart most is that no matter how good he is, how skilled he becomes, no matter how much he knows, no matter how popular or interesting he is, he cannot earn the love of the woman that he loves. He gets close some days. But the next thing you know, it's 6 a.m. And that stupid song comes back on the alarm clock radio and he starts all over again. He's back at square one. He learns a lot living that day over and over again, though. He gets good at playing the piano. He becomes a master ice sculptor. He even learns how to speak French. But none of that advances him one step in the direction he wants to go. All of his wisdom only heightens his sense of its senselessness. None of it seemed to matter. And that's exactly what it did for Solomon. It heightened his sensitivity to the unhappy lot we have in life as a result of sin. So wisdom doesn't lead where you might expect it to. It leads to sorrow. It leads to humiliation. So does self-indulgence. We doing okay on this mic, Tim? Self-indulgence leads to humiliation. We see that at the beginning of chapter 1 through verse 11. Solomon turns to stacking up stuff and piling on pleasure and finds out it's all vanity too. He says he was trying to find what was good for the children of man to do on earth during the few days of their life in verse 3. So he made stuff. Houses and vineyards and gardens and parks. He had servants and flocks and herds and silver and gold. He surrounded himself with entertainment and the company of beautiful women. He says in verse 10, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart no pleasure. And he says he found pleasure in his work and his reward for his work. But then he considered all the things that he had accomplished and all the work that he put into achieving them and saw that even though he had gained everything he ever wanted, he had gained nothing at all. Because there's nothing to be truly gained that has any lasting significance under the sun. In community group last week, we had some good conversation. Um, I think Zach was the one that brought this up. He, he was. Uh, an interview with, with Tom Brady. That was years ago. You know, he's touted as the greatest quarterback of all time. And he's, he's won multiple Super Bowls. He's, you know, he's got a gorgeous wife who makes more money than he does. You know, they live in a, a mansion, take fancy, expensive trips. They've probably given away more money than any one of us will ever earn in a lifetime. And yet he still says there was something missing and he didn't know what it was. He reached all his goals multiple times over, but he said, why do I have all this and still think there's something greater for me? That's what he said. There's got to be more than this. This can't be all there is for me. Those were his words. And then the interviewer asks him, he says, what's the answer? And he says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Solomon had gained everything and found that it was nothing. Now here's the little thing running in the background of these verses. You guys have um, picture-in-picture at home? TV with the whole picture-in-picture thing, right? You got the two channels playing, one's in the corner. You use that? You guys like that? 
I, I, I don't. I can't stand that. I hate it. It, it drives me crazy. It's too much. <laughs> but th- this, is, this is the channel that's playing in the corner. All right? Solomon is not an unbeliever. He's not assuming that God does not exist or that God is not sovereign. He's got that in the back of his thinking all the time. And you get a clue there in uh, verse 3. He says, I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. And in verse 9 he says, my wisdom remained with me. This is a dangerous game he's playing, okay? But he's going out on this, this quest for meaning in God's world but on his own terms. He's, he's looking for this, this quest for knowledge and meaning under the sun, assuming the protection of God and the truth of his word. He can't undo his learning. He knows too much. God made him the wisest man in the world. While it would have been better for him to walk consistently in an upright manner that's pleasing to God, he does venture off and and tries things on his own terms. But he does so sort of with a a safety line attached to him that's grounded in the truth and reality of God's world. Now remember, he's the one giving us this under-the-sun category. It's because he knows this is not all that there is. He's experimenting with everything this life affords, knowing God, but choosing to know him from a distance. It's not working out. In the end, he knows the only safe footing is resting in God and in his providence. Life doesn't make sense without him. You can have everything, and if you don't have him, you have nothing. There's nothing to be gained under the sun. Self-indulgence, too, leads to humiliation. Last point, humiliation leads us to Christ. This is a book for people of today as much as it was then. Y'all ever heard of uh, the Humanist Manifesto? Human Manifesto? Humanist Manifesto? You heard of that? It basically assumes education and self-actualization is the answer to man's problem. The conclusion to the manifesto is this. No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. The humanist and secular thinking today believes that man is the measure of all things and looks to man himself as the savior of man. This book does a wonderful job of letting that man run out to the end of his tether. He didn't know he was chained to the earth and that his thinking and abilities had limits. This forces him to see it. People today think education will cure man of his evil and legislation will solve the world's problems, but we find out that doesn't work. And when it doesn't, our solution is what? More of both, right? More school, more programs, more laws. But it only ever gets us so far. Which alerts us, or should alert us, to the fact that there must be a deeper issue going on in the hearts of men that must be changed. And no matter how hard we try to rehabilitate people or or punish people or deter men from evil, it it never seems to work. And the utopia that we're all craving and, and striving for and think we're working towards is always out of reach. We know we're bad. 
we know we should be better. And something better exists. We're sure of it. And no matter what, we can't seem to have it. That's a drag. Solomon wants to illustrate that fact for us, bring us face to face with it, so that we can conclude we're helpless. We are beyond saving. We cannot help ourselves. We must have divine intervention. That's where it should lead us. Solomon says, you know, you're bringing a knife to a gunfight. You, man can't possibly be the, solutions, be, be the solution to man's problem. Let, let me ask you this. You guys catching what I'm throwing here? I mean, when do you ask for help? When you think you've got it all together? Or when you're driven to it? There's something about desperation that clues you in on, on, on how things actually are. And our problem isn't anything that can be cured by us. Our problem is the disapproval of God. That's man's problem. We don't have a head problem. We don't have a knowledge problem. We have a moral problem. This place, too, is cursed. It's upside down. And we don't possess the knowledge or the tools or the skills to be able to fix it. And there's only so much numbing with pleasure that we can do. The reality is the answers we're looking for are not found in ourselves. We, we can't find them in our own reasoning. And in fact, if we're honest, the more we know, the more we realize we don't know. The more knowledge we obtain, the clearer we see our ignorance. And that's humiliating. That's embarrassing. That knocks us off our high horse. The only thing we can ever really wise up to is that we're trying to solve an unsolvable riddle. Or we're trying to put a puzzle together and we just keep finding out that there's infinite pieces. We can't solve our problems by gain either. You know, all of this is striving after wind. That's what Solomon says. Can you imagine trying to gather up the wind? You know, we hear striving after wind, and, you know, it's, it's, it's poetry, and it's in the Bible, and, you know, we just kind of, like, let that stuff go in one ear and out the other. That's what he's saying. It's like shepherding the wind. It's like herding cats. You're just not going to pull it off. I'll tell you a quick story. When I, when I was a teenager, I worked in a movie theater, and there was this prank that we used to play on new employees. We'd give them a trash bag and tell them, hey, you know, every, every, every you know, three hours or so, you've got to go in the bathroom and, like, get out the stale air. And they, not knowing better, right? I was a teenager myself, but we had other teenagers, and some of them weren't the sharpest tool in the shed, people, okay? And you give them this bag, and they go in the bathroom, and they're going, and filling it up, and, like, emptying it out in the hallways, you know? <laughs> it's not really going to do much. But that's you know, gathering the wind. It's striving after wind. We can't solve our problems by gain. We can work hard. We can buy stuff, build stuff, experience stuff. And in the end, it's like drinking salt water. You're just going to be thirstier than you were when you started. The solution, the real solution, is actually pretty simple. But it's bloody 
and it means dying. Whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. Isn't that what Jesus said? What's he mean, loses his life? He's not talking about being buried in the ground, dirt piled on you. Remember Romans 12, he wants a living sacrifice. It means handing over the rights to your own life and, and, and giving it to him. Choosing to live on his terms and not your own anymore. You, you come to the end of yourself and you see your sin and the sin of the world and you get embarrassed, okay, because you've been caught chasing your tail. And I, I think this is a part of the gospel we leave out a lot when we talk to people because we're afraid someone will get offended. But y'all, why would anyone who thinks they've got it all, ever, uh, all together think they need to be saved? You know, how do you tell somebody who's got everything they want, you need to be saved? I've got everything I want. I've achieved everything I've wanted to in the world. I've got all the comfort and luxuries. I don't need anything. Sure, I'm unhappy, but that's just life, right? What do you need to be saved from? The disapproval and wrath of Almighty God. That's what. The good news is that that problem has been solved, and there's nothing anyone can do to improve upon it. Jesus makes crooked things straight. He counted what was lacking in you and paid it all. His wisdom is inexhaustible. And his kingdom that he's building, it will last. It will not crumble like the things of this earth. His joy is complete and his treasure is you. If you have repented of your sins and confessed that Jesus is Lord, you belong to him, and he says no one can snatch you out of his hand. Praise God that the solution to our fallen, messed up, frustrated human condition is not conditioned upon a man whose life is like a breath or a vapor and then he's gone, but it's conditioned upon him who was from the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, the Alpha and the Omega. We needed help, and help has come. But it it takes seeing our mess and admitting we need help. That's how we get it. And that's for all of us. It's not just for unbelievers. It's for average Joe Christians, just like any one of us who are mothers or accountants or retirees. We all feel the weight of futility. We've all tasted the hebel, the vanity of life. You know, we we wash our dishes, we put them away, we get them back out, we dirty them up, and the cycle continues. We wake up in the morning, we make our bed, we mess it up again. My wife folds a heap of laundry every evening, and there's just another heap waiting for her the next day. You work your tail off in your job, whatever it is that you do to get ahead. You make dollars and cents and you can't seem to keep it. It it all just gets swallowed up somehow. 
you work hard and you do everything right. It doesn't really seem to matter. Now listen, being a Christian doesn't mean pretending that pain isn't there or feeling bad about feeling it. That in and of itself, I'm not going to get into this, but that in and of itself is a, is a form of self-righteousness. Okay? When we have our pity parties about, oh, well, I feel bad about this and I shouldn't feel bad. What it means is being a Christian, having the knowledge of, of God and his word through the revelation of his word and by his Holy Spirit is that we recognize there is help for that every day. Unlimited access mediated by Christ who gave it to us. You know, it'll practically, right? Practically. It allows us uh, to, to cry out to God, God, I'm at the end of my rope with these children. Feel that way sometimes? Do you feel bad about feeling it? Get over it. Cry out to the one who provides you help, even then. That's the first response. Or, God, I, there is no way humanly possible I can get this done in time. That's true. You should ask God to multiply your efforts to give you energy that you can't really even explain. You don't know how it got there apart from he gave it to you. Because then he gets the credit and the glory and not you. In those moments, whatever it is, right, don't, don't just live in the tragedy. And for God's sake, don't pretend it's not tragic. It is. It's life in this world. Call on the one who is ready to meet you in your frustration and your grief and ask him to stand you up straight, give you a little pat on the backside, and know that he is willing and able to give meaning to everything you do. None of it is wasted. Not one drop of it. He picks up all the little broken pieces of everything you think has fallen apart, and he, he, he makes something out of them. He did it with you. He can do it with your circumstances. He takes all the mundane tasks and the little things in your life that gnaw at, you, gnaw at you, and he is glorified even in them. Dare I say mostly in them. Because if you're paying attention, that's where you see your need of him, and that's only ever all the time in those little things. He can show you how to find joy in the mundane and in the frustration and in the disappointment if you'll just ask and quit struggling to try to make sense of it on your own. And here's the thing I think we need to hear, okay? God is not too big to care about small things. God is not too big to care about small things. I know we, I know we think he is sometimes, right? We think he's in charge of all the big cosmic like salvation stuff, but this day-to-day -day thing, man, I'm on my own. Not true. We fall back on our self-sufficiency and our self-reliance, but y'all, you got to see and be willing to admit, be willing to endure the humiliation. Your smallest problems are too big for you to solve. You can't do it. He can. And he does. Two things I'll leave you with in closing. 
Don't look to man for solutions. He doesn't have any. That includes you, though. Don't look to yourself either. And secondly, God never promises he will make this life easier. He promises he will make it better. Good is better than easy, isn't it? We'll talk more about that next week, in next week's sermon. Let me close this in prayer. Lord our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you alone are God and we are not. And if we're being honest, Lord, that frustrates us. In those moments, Lord, we pray that you, as who we've already mentioned this morning, is a good father, that you would use that to humiliate us. And that would be just fine with us, that that truly would be well with our souls. So that we can see you are, you are always ready to meet us wherever we are in our time of need, that you're not too big to look at the small things in our lives. God, help us, help us to see that this very week. Let it not just be something that we heard in a sermon on a Sunday morning. Let it not just be something that we all just nodded and said amen, but let us have a true experience of it this week that makes a difference in our lives, in our families' lives, and in the lives of those around us who are close to us but far from you. God, we pray that you would do it all for your glory and for the strength of your church. In Jesus' name, amen.